Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, February 23. I'm Tom Tilley. As the first vaccine doses go into our arms this week here in Australia, we're going to bring you an in-depth interview with Pfizer. You'll find out what side effects you can expect and how they made this vaccine four times quicker than any other vaccine in history. We actually started scaling up manufacturing before um, the vaccine was approved so that in the event that it was approved, which it was, then we were able to roll out large uh, volumes of supply in a very quick time. That's the Australian Medical Director of Pfizer going in-depth here on The Briefing in just a moment. First, we're going to get into the news with The Briefing's very hard-working, very devoted news producer, Sally Spicer, has been getting up at 2am to produce this show since it started last year. Good morning, Sal. Good morning, Tom. Should we do this? Oh, let's go. A fourth woman has made an allegation against the ex-staffer accused of raping Brittany Higgins in Parliament House in 2019. Yeah, so this woman who's spoken anonymously has made a formal complaint to police in Canberra. She did that on Sunday. She says the man shoved his hand under the table and stroked her thigh at a bar back in 2017. Miss Higgins is due to make her own formal statement to the AFP tomorrow. Yesterday, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds again told Parliament that she offered to refer the matter to police after it happened back in 2019. I did facilitate uh, a meeting for Miss Higgins if she wanted one uh, with the Australian Federal Police. It was the Assistant Commissioner uh, who came up to my office and met briefly with me alone and then the AFP met with um, Brittany. And all eyes will be on Linda Reynolds when she faces questions at the National Press Club tomorrow. Uh, It comes as the nine newspapers report that the man in question has now been stood aside from his latest job at a large corporation. Uh, He's also believed to have checked into a private health clinic. And Crown Casinos will face a Royal Commission in Victoria, uh, looking into whether it's fit to run its Melbourne casino. This comes after the damning New South Wales inquiry found that it's not suitable to hold a licence for its Sydney Barangaroo Casino. Here's Victorian Gaming Minister Melissa Horne. What is important, particularly now we've seen a number of resignations from Crown, is that we establish this Royal Commission because that is the way we can actually make sure that we have got a casino that is operating suitably here in Victoria. Yeah, so the $7 million inquiry will examine allegations aired during the New South Wales inquiry of money laundering and organised crime being facilitated by the company. Shortly after Victoria made that announcement yesterday, long-serving director Harold Mitchell announced his resignation from the board. He's the fourth director to step down since the report came out, including the CEO. So very bad news for Crown. It'll be really interesting to see how this Victorian inquiry goes because, um, as we just sort of touched on, A lot of the damning findings in the New South Wales inquiry were about what they were doing in Victoria and Perth, where they have casinos running already. Yeah, and the uh, Western Australian government has already announced that it's going to have an inquiry looking at its Perth licence. That's going to take around four months. That's not officially a Royal Commission, but it'll have the same powers, and this one is a Royal Commission, so not a good year for Crown. Today is the day an increase to job seekers should finally be announced. Government sources have told the nine newspapers that it is expected to be announced after a coalition party room today. Yeah, so the question's going to be, Sal, is how much this increase will be. At the start of the pandemic, people on this payment, the old New Start payment, were getting an extra 550 a fortnight. It's since been wound back to 150 extra a fortnight, which is what it is now until the end of March. It's hard to imagine they'll keep it at that level or definitely nowhere north of that. 
but I have seen reports of Deloitte modeling of $80 a fortnight. That might give you some idea uh, where this will go. Yeah, and I'm sure people will be happy to finally have some certainty. That $80 a fortnight would actually only cost the budget $3 billion as well, according to that modelling, which when you think about how much we've spent uh, during the pandemic is uh, is not that much. And the government will also be really keen um, to have some good news. This week they were hoping to chat about vaccinations, you know, so long awaited, so important, but, you know, we have all been sort of focusing on the Brittany Higgins and the Parliament House saga. So it'll be good for them, I'm sure, to have some good news in the headlines. And after 28 years, one of the most epic duos of our time, Daft Punk, is calling it quits. I'm about to tear up with this story. Oh, a bit (laughs) emotional, Tom. Yeah, they announced this news in an eight-minute video called Epilogue. And in that video, the two robots, which symbolise the two uh, French members, go into a desert and one of them blows up. (laughs) Bit of a bad breakup. They released their first album, uh, Homework, back in 1997 and... You know, they've just released hit after hit and that recent album, or not that recent, but 2013, Random Access Memories, was such an interesting experimentation. I wanted more, but here we are. Here's here's a a little moment of magic that came from that very first album. We're going to make you cry, Tom. (laughs) You'll still hear this on dance floors for uh, decades, I reckon. Um, An absolute banger. All right, thank you, Sal. In a moment, we are going in-depth with Pfizer. Yes, the vaccine is being rolled out in Australia this week. And Annika, I feel like when history's written, this will be a very important week in the big story of the COVID pandemic. Yes, Tom, in the depths of the crisis, we learned there'd never actually been a successful vaccine for previous coronaviruses like SARS. That made me feel pretty miserable at the time. And we also learned that the fastest vaccine that had ever been developed still took four years, so it was all looking pretty grim. But here we are, rolling out the Pfizer vaccine in Australia in less than a year. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And to find out more about and ask all the curly questions about the Pfizer vaccine, we've got their Australian medical director, Krishan Theroux. Krishan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you peel back the curtain inside Pfizer for us? When the chips were down in those dark, grim months of March, April last year, what was the mood like inside Pfizer? Dark, grim times is certainly a very apt uh, description to, I think, the challenge that the world was facing uh, March, uh, April last year. Uh, Pfizer is a a global healthcare leader. We felt a, a moral and an ethical responsibility to be at the forefront uh, of the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. So we we have a long uh, heritage in vaccine development and, and vaccine supply. We had a pre-existing uh, arrangement with a company, a partner company called BioNTech uh, in Germany, and we'd been working with them uh, on some innovative technologies uh, to develop new vaccines. And that's called a, an mRNA platform, which I'm sure you've heard mm-hmm. about. And we looked to see whether we could adapt that technology to develop a, a vaccine uh, against COVID-19. And so we got to work very quickly with our partners and, and looked at that in the laboratory. And certainly when it showed promise in the laboratory, we moved that into clinical studies as, as quickly as possible. And, and here we are now in less than a year with a fully approved uh, vaccine by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And as you've seen, the first doses have now been administered in Australia. 
So what timelines were you working towards? Normally, the vaccine development timeline, and this is actually similar for any new medicine, can take five to ten or you know, a dozen years in, in some cases. Now, clearly, we didn't have that time uh, to spend on this. So we've seen over the course of the last year, there have been more than 100 million cases of COVID globally and more than 2 million deaths from COVID globally. And even in Australia, 900 families have tragically lost a loved one. So we didn't have that time to waste. So what was done differently to be able to develop a vaccine that can normally take more than five years in, in under one year? So there are a number of factors that made that possible. Firstly, there was essentially unlimited resources. So in terms of uh, funds, um, as well as people, um, scientific expertise, there were folks teams um, in, within our company and across other companies and academia and, and, and research institutes as well, working solely on this problem. Now, normally when you're developing a new vaccine or product, you have to compete with other medicines that are in development for um, you know, scarce resources and, and, and expertise. That was not the case here. The other one was that when studies were started, there was a very large pool of willing study participants. So one of the rate limiting steps in a clinical program normally is the time that it takes to recruit people to volunteer to be in the studies. That was not the case here. There was more than enough people who, who were willing to volunteer. Then normally with, with studies, you do sort of small studies and you do studies sequentially before you get to the larger studies. We didn't have that time to waste. So a lot of that work was done in parallel. And some of the studies were, I suppose, evolved from smaller studies to larger studies more quickly than would otherwise be the case. We actually started scaling up manufacturing before um, the vaccine was approved so that in the event that it was approved, which it was, then we were able to roll out large uh, volumes of supply in a very quick time. That sounds incredibly efficient and you can't help but wonder why we don't usually put that much resources into developing other vaccines. But isn't there some advantage in the usual slower timeline? Because it seems that if you do it that way, you can assess a more long-term impact of vaccines over a drawn-out period. Do you think that we will learn more about this as we go on and we're further away from the initial rollout? Firstly, to, to respond to your first, first point, I think, yeah, it would be ideal if we can use these accelerated timelines for, for other diseases and, and other infections and other vaccines as well. And I think some of the learnings from this process will um, definitely be applied to future development programs for, for other products. In terms of uh, the, you know, the amount of information that's been collected over the last year, I do want to reiterate, and this is critically important, there have been no shortcuts taken. So the amount of information that we have collected, and this was in a pivotal study of 44,000 uh, participants, is actually the same, if not more, than for other medicines or other vaccines um, when they're approved. So there have been no shortcuts um, in the amount of clinical information that's been collected and that's been evaluated by the TGA. Exactly the same as with any other uh, medicine or vaccine, once it's approved, we continue uh, to collect further information. And that's going forward in collecting both safety reports um, in Australia and globally, looking to see if there's any you know, untoward or unexpected patterns. But I'm pleased that, you know, as of uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we'd already distributed more than 80 million doses of, of the vaccine globally. 
and obviously not all of those would have been given to people yet, um, but a significant proportion would have been. And we haven't seen anything uh, unexpected. What's been seen in the real world is exactly what we saw in the clinical trials. Now, there's been a bit of confusion about what the vaccine actually does. I understand it doesn't necessarily stop people from spreading it from person to person, but it limits the symptoms and the side effects if you are to come into contact with the virus. Is that how it works? Correct. The initial studies uh, that were looking at this vaccine, and to my knowledge for the other COVID-19 vaccines, was looking to see whether it prevents COVID-19 disease. So that's the symptomatic uh, infection um, that's, uh, as we mentioned earlier, caused uh, you know so much devastation globally and unfortunately so many deaths as well. And the vaccine has been evaluated by agencies and it's met their highest standards for efficacy uh, and safety in preventing those cases of severe disease. So whether it has an effect on uh, you actually acquiring the virus and then potentially spreading it to others, so whether it has an effect on transmission is something that we're still currently looking at. And um, the studies that we're doing uh, the further studies that we're doing, as well as some of the real-world data studies that have been in, uh, seen in you know, places like Israel, will help further evaluate whether it actually has an effect on reducing that transmission to others. But what we do know um, is that it has been evaluated to uh, substantially reduce uh, the rates of, of COVID-19 disease. So the infections um, and the illnesses that have caused you know, so much devastation around the globe. That's great news for people that get it. But what does that mean for, say, herd immunity? We keep being told that enough of us have to be immune to this virus in order for it to stop spreading and to get back to, you know, a pre-COVID or COVID normal existence. Is this going to prevent us from being able to get back to that idea because we're not actually being able to stop spreading it around the world? So what we do know with the approved COVID-19 vaccines is it does provide immunity. Um, Now, what proportion of people need to be immune, you know, how long the duration of that immunity lasts is, is all information that's to be worked out. But from past experience, and this is with other infections as well, so usually when you have a highly effective vaccine, if you use measles uh, as an example, um, when you have a highly effective vaccine, that also um, does reduce transmission. And so herd immunity is something that's very possible. Now that's still to be worked out for COVID-19, but, you know, the experts that, that, that I've um, heard are, are very hopeful that that is something that can be achieved. Christian, there's been a bit of disappointment here in Australia that we're getting the vaccine later than other countries and that we're only getting 10 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Why are we only getting it now? And can you give us some more, please? <laughs> Well, I'm not the one that decides um, who gets more, but I can give you some context around that. So every country is different. Uh, Every government and every regulatory agency has their uh, own processes and their own needs. We're certainly working in lockstep with the Australian government um, to roll out the vaccine, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, as quickly uh, as possible. We've actually uh, have an agreement with the Australian government to supply 20 million doses. So that's enough to vaccinate 10 million people. Uh, 10 million Australians over the course of this year. We're very pleased that the first doses are already out there with the formal rollout of the program uh, this week. And we very much look forward to that ramping up uh, over the course of the year. But why only now? Israel got it in December. 
That's a matter for, in terms of timelines and the signing of agreements with governments, that's certainly, and every country is different. Every country has its own needs. Every country makes its own decisions on which companies and which vaccines it wants to sign agreements with. Um, We're very pleased that we're able to supply uh, enough doses to to vaccinate uh, 10 million Australians over the course of the year. There are going to be some side effects from getting the jab, as with all vaccinations. So what can we expect when we go in and get this one? Is it the same as, say, getting a flu jab? So the type of uh, adverse effects that people can expect is not dissimilar to uh, to getting the flu jab, as you said. So uh, the most common effect, and this usually is uh, the next day after the vaccine, is you will get a, a painful arm, and probably most people will experience that. Some people will also experience some tiredness or fatigue and maybe some headaches, uh, maybe some muscle aches and pains. Potentially a very small number may experience a fever as well. But it's important to note that these are usually mild and transient. They last maybe a a day or two. And they're actually a sign that that your body is mounting the desired immune response uh, against the vaccine. And that's what we're actually looking for. So that in future, if you do encounter the real coronavirus, then your immune system is primed and ready to go, ready to attack. And so that you're less likely to get sick and actually get COVID-19 disease. One of the things about this vaccine is it has to be kept really, really cold at minus 70 degrees. That's been an issue with the rollout. What work is being done to determine whether it could be stored at a less inconvenient temperature to make this rollout easier? So certainly there has been a lot of media coverage around the the storage requirements, and you're correct that the current uh, the, the formulation of the Pfizer vaccine at the moment does require uh, storage during uh, transportation and shipping at a, an ultra cold uh, temperature of, of minus around minus seventy degrees. It's important to note that that actually hasn't presented any problems for us in terms of our our shipping. So over 99.9% of our shipments have actually made it from the manufacturing plant to the designated point of use with the quality and the integrity uh, of the product uh, intact. And that's using specially designed uh, thermal shippers that actually use dry ice uh, to keep it that cold. Once it gets to the uh, point of use, it can actually be kept in that shipper um, for up to a 30 further days if there's no ultra cold um, freezer available. So it's actually, uh, I think, you know, it hasn't posed as much of a problem as some people, um, you know, were expecting. Pfizer's Australian medical director, Christian Theroux there. Annika, which vaccine are you hoping to get? As much as I think it's great that Pfizer's here and they are vaccinating like crazy around the world, I always had my eye on the AstraZeneca one. I have no idea why. This is not medical advice, Tom. (laughs) But I do like that it's being manufactured here in Australia. And from what I'd heard about it, it was based on some long-term technology that we've been using and they just pivoted. Having said that, after hearing that stuff about Pfizer just then, I'm open for convincing. What about you? I want the one with the highest efficacy. Um, (laughs) I reckon you just like the Oxford... You know, Oxford has the credibility. That was the university it was developed at. I'm Maybe patriotic. The... It's being made here, Tom. <laughs> made in Victoria. Exactly. I'm a proud Victorian. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going in-depth on the Crown Casinos scandal. We're actually going to speak to a former senior New South Wales official who was involved in the original decision to approve the Barangaroo Casino, um, which has caused so many problems now for the company. 
listener.